This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. The Earth just saw the hottest January in more than 140 years of record-keeping. And just weeks ago, the hottest ever temperatures were recorded in Antarctica. We are living in the age of an impending climate crisis. And for most of us, it seems like life just kind of goes on each day. Business as usual. Most people will likely continue to ignore the growing signs of climate change until it starts disrupting their lives in ways that they just can't ignore anymore. But what if there's a way we could start to embrace climate-friendly policies and even feel motivated to change our behavior, maybe by buying an electric car or installing solar panels? According to my next guest, the way to make these changes toward greater sustainability is all about applying basic principles of peer pressure. Professor Robert Frank is the author of In Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, and he joins us now. Professor Frank, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks for having me on. So uh, in reading your book, I mean, it's, it's clear that this fits into a much larger sense you have of the way human behavior works. Um, uh, but I want to start with uh, where you start in, in the book, this idea that um, uh, the, the idea that we behave the way we do because of the way we see other people behave and we use that as expectation for ourselves. Yeah, I think uh, it, it was interesting in the discussions at Princeton Press about what to call the book. I was very opposed to having the term peer pressure anywhere in the title or subtitle <laughs> or the marketing materials because the term has such a negative valence. We, we teach our kids not to be influenced by the peers and so on. Uh, uh, and it's true, you have to be judicious in thinking about what behaviors you want to emulate in others. But uh, basically, the world is a complicated place. You know, we, we don't know much. Nobody else knows much either. But, but collectively, other people know a lot more than we do. And so if we see others confidently doing something uh, and they seem to know what they're doing, that's at least a, a reasonable hint that we ought to investigate whether it might make sense for us to be doing it too. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we have a very strong impulse to, to at least consider doing what others are doing. And in, in the climate domain, that's been hugely important. I mean, I think as an economist, I always thought that the main reason people drove cars that were bigger than they needed or built houses that were bigger than they needed were, was that we didn't charge them for the emissions associated with doing those things. Hmm. Uh, and that is part of the problem. But but really, the main reason we do those things is that other people like us do them. Hmm. So talk about how you came to the realization that applying a kind of behavioral economics could somehow be beneficial in the realm of the climate crisis. I think I came came to this topic uh, uh, in in the course of thinking about what we did with respect to smoking. Uh, we we started going after smoking as a problem uh, only after there were Japanese studies published showing that exposure to secondhand smoke caused injury to others. Uh, we're we're very averse to regulating or or taxing in this country. We need a, a pretty powerful excuse. To consider doing it, and and the John Stuart Mill rationale 
uh, that you can tell uh, somebody not to do what he wants to do only to prevent harm to others is is more or less the the guiding principle. So we we tax cigarettes to prevent harm from secondhand smoke, but mm. but that harm is really quite minor compared to another harm that you cause if you smoke, and that's to make other people in your circle more likely to smoke themselves. That's the real harm you do if you're a smoker. So uh, the the fact that we made smoking less attractive by taxing it, by saying you couldn't smoke in specific places, uh, what the effect of that was, was to induce a few people not to smoke, um, not many. Uh, smokers are pretty dedicated to their their habit, but the fact that fewer people started meant that each peer group had fewer people in it who smoked. And over time, uh, except for that social influence, we wouldn't have seen anything like the dramatic reductions in smoking rates that we've seen. Hmm. And, and that's the same thing uh, we can see in, in a host of other domains. If we gently push people in a certain direction, then uh, it's a process that, require, that acquires a momentum all of its own. So, we so, can give sub- subsidies for installing solar panels. Your neighbor sees one on your rooftop. He asks you about it. Uh, pretty soon he's got one. <laughs> and studies have shown that if, if we just get one uh, house to install them in a neighborhood, uh, you'll see another installation uh, being caused by that one within four months. And then uh, there are two of them. Now those two uh, will cause installation. So it doubles every four months, essentially. So one of the, the really great and entertaining parts of your book are, are the examples you you draw on to, to demonstrate this kind of mimicry or 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 following behavior and one of my favorites is in a chapter called the impulse to conform and you talk about the the show the old show candid camera that alan funt uh, used to produce and and this scenario in which a, a man is told that uh, he's going to interview for a high paying job and then shows up to, to this interview, and what happens next is this really powerful example of the the the, the willingness to to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily <laughs> yeah. do because you think everyone else is doing it, and that that is now the norm. Talk about what happened in that episode of Candid yeah, that, Camera. Yeah, that Candid Camera episode is uh, perhaps my favorite uh, among hundreds of examples of, of how dramatic the the peer effect can be. Uh, as, as you set it up, the, the man is shown into the waiting room. There are already four people in there waiting. Uh, he doesn't know, but the viewer knows that they're Confederates of Alan Funt, the, the showrunner. Uh, and so the, the film shows them sitting there silently. Nobody's talking to anybody. Uh, it goes on to, to shoot other scenes and keeps coming back. They're still waiting. Finally, the camera... Uh, hands in on the subject's face uh, he looks impassive but then all of a sudden he looks very alarmed and he starts looking about why is he alarmed well it's because the other four at no apparent signal have stood up and have begun taking off all their clothing and he's totally buffaloed by what he sees uh, but you can you can just tell the moment he flips he gets a relaxed expression. He stands up and he takes off all of his clothing too. And the scene ends. They're all five of them 
standing there naked waiting for what comes next. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you say, no way, I would have done that. Uh, uh, but then think about it from his perspective. You know, it's a great job, no onerous qualifications. Uh, the other guys got there before he did. If, if anybody knows what, what the drill is, they do. And they seem to think it's worth going through uh, the the next step. And so he's got to decide, is it worth it or not? And mm. he decides that, that it is. And you, and you just don't want to say that he obviously made a mistake in, in reacting that way. Right, right. Um, and the, the power of that suggestive context, in other words, that, that everyone else is doing it and that must make it okay – I think it's worth pausing to think about whether whether manipulating that, whether taking advantage of that, brushes up against other kinds of, I guess, ethical questions. In other words, because we know how susceptible human beings and Americans maybe in particular are to this kind of pressure, is it right then to 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 do things that we know play into that essentially weakness that that, that yeah, people it, have. Yeah, it's a it's a totally fair question, Stephen. And I I think the the nightmare is that some bureaucrats would feel empowered to push us around and get us to do all all sorts of things we shouldn't do. But uh, here here's what we know: we know that the social environment is is probably the biggest of of all the possible influences on on what we do in any situation. Uh, sometimes that's for good. Uh, often it's for ill, as in the smoking case. What I think, so that's an old idea. It's not controversial. Uh, it's also true, but we don't notice this as much, that the, the causation goes the other direction, too. What's the social environment? It's just a consequence in the aggregate of what we do. So what's the smoking rate that influences whether our kids will smoke? It's, a, it's the sum total of all the individual decisions of whether or not to smoke. Mm. And all parents uh, that I know, anyway, all, all, all of them don't want their kids to grow up to be smokers. They would be happier if their kids grew up in an environment in which there were fewer smokers. And so I think in cases like that, uh, we have a democratic process, or we're trying to preserve one. And if we can uh, elect representatives who will uh, judiciously decide when to try to steer individual behavior in a way that would have a beneficial effect on the social environment and away from activities that would have a negative effect on it, why not consider doing that? Uh, and especially since we seem to have instruments, as in the smoking case, we, we taxed cigarettes. Uh, the revenue we raised by doing that enabled us to reduce taxes on activities that are actually useful. Uh, we tax payrolls now. Why should we make it less attractive for companies to hire workers? We could reduce the payroll tax if we raised extra revenue by taxing activities that cause harm to others. So so I think there, there are some really exciting opportunities ahead of us. You know, we want to be uh, humble about using the power of the state to to intervene, yes, but but uh, if there are good opportunities to intervene to our mutual advantage, why not consider them? My guest is Robert Frank. He's a Cornell economist, a New York Times columnist, and author of a book called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, which talks about the opportunity that might exist to use 
peer pressure, the kinds of social contacts that all of us take cues from, in order to change behavior as it relates to climate change. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what kinds of changes you have already made when trying to live in better relation to the earth in the age of pretty dramatic climate change. What kinds of changes seem like overwhelming obstacles? What do you think would help you realize your goals to live a more environmentally conscious life? And is it the financial challenges or the fear that other more pressing issues would have to go on the back burner that keeps you from doing more of what uh, we all know we need to be doing to stop the Earth's climate change from happening as rapidly and dramatically as it has. Uh, Also give us a call and tell us what you think about the idea of peer pressure. How much does that play a role in the choices you make about where you live, about maybe the car that you drive? Uh, How does it play on uh, the things that, that you do to form your life uh, to, to, to look at what other people are doing. Uh, I'm really curious about how people deal with that. Also, call and tell us how you teach your children to deal with that. It's something that as parents we all confront is the idea of our kids being more influenced by other people uh, than they are by their own consciences or by us. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, I want to talk about a term uh, that you use in the book, uh, Robert, uh, uh, behavioral contagion. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a concept you spend a lot of time talking about. Explain to the listeners what that is. Uh, well, we've been talking about it. It's mm-hmm. the tendency that I think we all uh, have to one degree or another to be influenced by behaviors, ideas, uh, uh, trends, memes that we see out in the world around us. Uh, it's a, it's a, a useful trait in the large, but there are lots and lots of examples of how it leads us astray. And I think uh, mainly the, the, the parent sees the job as cautioning the children not to be led astray by peers. I mean, if you see peers doing something that you know is a good thing to be doing. You don't really even need their approval to do it yourself. It, I think the, the peer influence uh, is dangerous when you see people doing something that you have a feeling you shouldn't be doing, and seeing them do it gives you uh, a kind of license to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the negative impression, I think, is not uh, a mysterious part of the picture, but Overall, I think we need to just recognize it as a, a fact of existence and cope with it as best we can. And, and nobody in the course of things uh, asks, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this thing I'm thinking of doing because it would uh, have a, a, a bad effect on others who might imitate me. Uh, smokers don't ask that question when they think about whether to smoke because naturally the influence we have as individuals on the social environment is very, very small. We just ignore that. But it would be better for everyone if we acted as if we cared about the effects of what we do might be on the social environment. Mm. And and that's really the theme of the book, yeah. how to get people to behave as if they cared 
how their own behavior would affect the social environment, which feeds back on everyone in turn. Mm. And, and you follow the chapter in which you, you begin to talk about this behavior contagion with a, a chapter on it's titled Expenditure Cascades. And I, I bring that up because there, there are some, again, really wonderful examples of the way in which people make decisions and think about uh, their place in the world, um, and you have some pretty interesting examples here. Uh, you say, which world would you choose? World A, you and your family live in a neighborhood with 4,000 square foot houses, and all the other neighborhoods have 6,000 square foot houses. Uh, and Or world B, you and your family live in a neighborhood with 3,000 square foot houses, and all the other neighborhoods have 2,000 square foot houses. So in each example... Um, you know, it, it, there there are two things going on. One is what's the size of your house, but the other is what's the size of everyone else's house. And you 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 talk about the proclivity to choose World B, where your house is smaller than it could be, but it's bigger than everyone else's. I, I think that's a really interesting sort of further iteration of this idea of of comparative behavior, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, ordinary uh, people don't really reflect on how the spending of others influences them. I mean, uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer long ago in Nepal. I lived in a two-room house. It didn't have any electricity or running water in it, but there was never a moment during the two years that I lived there that the house seemed in any way inadequate. It was a totally fine house in that context. But if I lived in a house like that here... Uh, wow, my kids wouldn't have wanted their friends to see where <laughs> we live. They would be ashamed. Right. Yeah, I would be ashamed to live in a house like that here. So context matters, uh, and and it affects how we spend our money. Uh, there, there are actually good instrumental reasons for wanting to have a smaller but relatively large house than, than the reverse, because the good schools everywhere you go are in the more expensive neighborhoods. And so if you have a relatively expensive house, your kids are going to go to the good schools. The people that have relatively less expensive house, their, their kids are going to go to the schools with metal detectors out front. Um, it's, it's a dilemma in the sense that it's very uh, similar structurally to the situation where everybody stands up to see better and nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. <laughs> right. so, so, so yeah, the, the, the fact is we don't need houses nearly as big as the ones we have. We don't need cars nearly as big as the ones we have. But because others have them, uh, we do need them in a certain sense. Uh, and we could very easily harvest a lot of the wealth that goes into buying the, the, the bigger stuff and spend it on things. Uh, that would actually make a difference in our lives. Uh, you, you talk about uh, the, the impending climate crisis. You know, the, there, there are things we could do about it. We could uh, invest in green infrastructure. It would be expensive, but, but the money is currently there. It's being spent on things that don't do anybody any good at all. Why not spend it on useful things? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about 
peer pressure and how it might be leveraged to deal with the climate crisis. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Sammy in Dearborn, Deborah in St. Clair Shores. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, call or go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Robert Frank. He's a Cornell economist, a New York Times columnist, and author of a book called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. It is about the idea that peer pressure could be one of the ways that we try to change behavior as it relates to climate change, which is going on all around us and seems to be accelerating in, in many ways. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Sammy in Dearborn. Sammy, what's on your mind? Hey, I think um, uh, he might have answered my question, but I can elaborate on it. Um, I was interested in knowing the negative impact of uh, peer pressure, for example, you know, if I come from an area where, you know, I own a Prius and everyone's driving a Prius and, and Tesla and I move to Dallas, Texas, where everyone's got like big pickup trucks and SUV, um, am I more inclined to, uh, you know, purchase a, a larger vehicle? Um, oh. But I guess to elaborate, is there is there a measure of the influence that our peers have on us? Um meaning, you know, we do kind of form a, a hierarchy with our peers. If I have five peers, maybe four of them, I don't, uh, re- I want to say respect, but maybe their influence isn't as, as greater on me as maybe one. Hmm. Um, is like having a really strong influential peer, uh, you know, is that more influential than maybe four uh, peers that yeah. are not? as influential. I think that's a really interesting question, Sammy. And and to sort of take your analogy and move it just a bit further, the question is, if you move to Texas with your Prius and to a neighborhood where everybody's driving trucks or SUVs, do you get influenced by that new neighborhood or do you influence that new neighborhood and convince the other people to, to go your way? I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, dilemma, Robert Frank. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great set of observations, and there's actually some research that speaks directly to those questions. The the research of the psychologist Betsy Levy Pollock and her colleagues uh, they've studied bullying in the schools, and and what they found is that when they they study the social networks in the schools, they can identify the central figures in them, the the, the students who are most popular and liked by the peers. If they can enlist one of those students to speak out against bullying, the effect is dramatically bigger reductions in bullying than uh, if anybody else joins that fight. So, yes, which peers are doing it definitely matters. Uh, That's true as well in smoking. Hmm. When popular kids smoke, which uh, there's a lot of random variation across schools, uh, schools, in some cases the cool kids smoke, in some cases the cool kids don't smoke, 
when the cool kids don't smoke, uh, it's been shown that even 10 years later, their classmates are less likely to have taken up smoking in each of the, the succeeding years. So, yeah, it's a it's a huge effect. And the Prius is a great example because uh, unlike the Honda Civic Hybrid, which looked just like the, the standard internal combustion engine variant of the Civic, uh, the Prius had this unique shape. If, if you were driving one, everybody knew you had a hybrid. And uh, the auto uh, commentators say that's the, the primary reason why the Prius sold in such large numbers when it was first in, introduced, and, and the Honda Civic Hybrid didn't, didn't do much uh, in the way of sales by comparison. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Deborah in St. Clair Shores. Deborah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking hey. my call, Stephen. Sure. Um, I'm just kind of coming off the heels of the uh, the Judy Woodruff uh, News Hour report hmm. about the uh, the ice sheet that they're studying in the Arctic, mm-hmm. which was pretty foreboding. And I'm just wondering if this issue of uh, lack of peer pressure is really it. I think it's more important for citizens to go to their uh, city councils and and uh, meetings and, and just try to speak out and just start asking your officials mm. if they have a plan. Mm. Because, well, especially for me living in Sinclair Shores, the water is rising. Yes, I'm it like is. two blocks away yeah. from the lake, and it's pretty distressing. Mm. Uh, Deborah, I really appreciate the call and and the question. I think it's an in, in, important part of the discussion. Robert Frank, we've only got about a minute left, but you do talk a lot in the book about policy and changing yeah. policy to to address this as well. And, and a lot of uh, economists have been critical of individual acts of environmental restraint, like buying a Prius or eating less meat. They say that's not what what's going to solve the problem. We need robust changes in public policy. And, and I, I used to agree that that was uh, a distraction to, to think about individual changes, but behavioral contagion has completely changed my mind about that. Mm-hmm. You, you take an action, the effect of that on the environment is small, just you alone, but you influence others, often an enormous number of others, by what you do. But more important Taking the action, buying the Prius, eating less meat, that changes who you are, and it makes you more likely to, to go to the city council or, the, or, or get involved in a campaign, write checks to the, the candidate who's going to take uh, the, the measures we need to take to curb uh, the warming trend, and you'll you go out and you knock on doors to help get those people elected. So individual action is way more consequential than I, I want to mention. Mm. Okay, Robert Frank, author of Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Oh, my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. We're going to talk about the surprises that you can get if you send in your DNA to companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. And we'll talk about the joy and fallout that can follow. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.